Lord Moore, you are famous, of course, for being the biographer of uh, Mrs. Thatcher. And I wonder if we could start by asking you what was Mrs. Thatcher's view of uh, the BBC? And did she see it as having failed in some way? Um, she was always uh, hostile to the BBC, um, and her husband, Dennis, even more so. Uh, he tended to say things like that, stinking, stinking, stinking BBC would be the sort of way he would put it. Um, uh, but in a way, a lot of that hostility was the simple hostility that politicians feel when they sense they're being attacked. Um, so there was an element of sort of unreflective quality about it. Um, and I don't think she thought deeply about what was on the television, didn't really watch it very much. Um, she did, however, attempt reforms. Um, and they were quite important. One was opening up the market much more because the era of satellite broadcasting was beginning. And that was a very important uh, change to permit that. And the other was that the only way the government can legitimately intervene in the BBC in terms of what's going on is by who it appoints as chairman. And she appointed Marmaduke Hussey um, after there'd been a most tremendous bust up with the Director General uh, Alistair Burt. And um, that did make a difference. And Hussey, who was basically a traditional British establishment figure rather than a Thatcherite radical, but he was quite tough and he, um, he did see that the BBC needed some internal discipline. Um, and uh, by putting him in, she achieved what in her view was some sort of modus vivendi. I mean, there was somebody she felt she could trust to behave um, responsibly, uh, and everything died down a bit. She sometimes had wider ambitions to change the whole system, but as has always been the case every time this has come up, um, in the end politicians don't quite think it's worth their while, and th the attack they'll get from the media will be so great, and um, it's also complicated and so noisy that in the end they leave it alone. Because the BBC has very powerful allies and friends, doesn't it? It would be, it would be a brave politician who would take the BBC on. In particular, in her case, um, the Home Secretary, who in those days was the minister responsible for the BBC, was also her deputy, Willie Whitelaw, who she trusted very much, but who was always very much in favour of the status quo at the BBC. So there was never really the right tools to hand to, to sort this out. Um, but I think she did change the landscape and... Of course, the, the rage at the time that she was allowing Rupert Murdoch to uh, start a satellite channel was beautiful to behold. Because I was, uh, I was in the ranks then at the BBC and uh, as, a, as a reporter, and it always seemed to me there was a very clear hostility to everything that Mrs Thatcher stood for within the BBC itself. Do you think that's fair? Yes, I do think that's fair. I don't think it was party political. I don't think it was that they were all Labour and she was Tory. I think it was more of a cultural attitude that um, she's a right, she's right-wing, lower middle class, and a woman, and those are all bad in their view at that time. And um, uh, they, my biggest criticism of them in that period was not so much that they were hostile to her, though they were, but that they could not understand or explain her to the viewer. That's the key thing. You, you, if you just depended on the BBC in that time, 
you wouldn't have known what all this is about. What, what's she doing? Why is she doing it? Um, it was sort of mysterious. Um, and that's the biggest, that's one of the biggest failures of bias, I think, is that it gets in the way of understanding change. That's very interesting. You should say that. We've just come from interviewing um, a representative of Republicans abroad. Um, and we were talking to her about the way the BBC tackled the Trump phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. What you've just said, I think, could be said of that also, of him also, don't you think? Yes, I mean, I think Donald Trump was much more so genuinely problematic than Margaret Thatcher. But um, I think the same thing applied, which was that um, if you just watch the BBC, you'd think, how is it possible that this man has become president? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Whereas if you sort of good reporting would explain why there were a lot of reasons um, and that extraordinary though he is, Trump, you, there were powerful points about why Trump was president. And it, to some extent, what he was trying to do, I mean, he was much less coherent than Mrs. Thatcher, but nevertheless, um, and that's really, you know, that's again, what a particularly a national broadcaster set up by law, financed by law, um, and told by law to be balanced. Um, it's got to elucidate things, not sort of um, just fill, fill the whole scene with the smoke of battle. But of course, um, the point you touch on there is that if the BBC approaches um, an issue like Trump um, from an ideological point of view, it actually it actually militates against understanding, doesn't it? I mean, that is really the problem with bias. And maybe the same thing was at work when the BBC uh, so badly misjudged its tone on Brexit, do you think? I think there was respect in, in modern political and media culture, which has made this worse because some things are considered so wicked in what you might call the, the woke way of thinking that such people actually think it's their duty to be what you or I might call biased. So, for example, if they think someone is a racist and some of them thought that Trump was a racist, they feel because it's so terrible to be a racist, they must say he's a racist. It's in their view, their duty to the truth. Whereas I would say you should never describe someone really as a racist unless there's sort of overwhelming evidence such as they say that they're racist, for example, or they say absolutely blatant um, things. You have to, um, those judgments are very severe judgments to pass on people and they've got to be objectively correct. Um, but they don't really think that because they think, and the same I think to some extent do with sexist or what is called homophobic, possibly Islamophobic uh, and so on. There are things that are just so out of order uh, in their minds that they regard the restrictions on bias as being a way of caging the truth. Um, and, uh, and indeed, they might say they were even designed to cage the truth. Um, and therefore, of course, to most viewers, I would think they were failing in their duty. Um, you had the interesting experience of being in-house at the BBC a couple of years ago when they invited you to be guest editor, didn't they, at Christmas one year? Yes. Um, tell me what your impressions were of that experience for you. Did it, did it, um, did it 
did it reaffirm you in your view? Did you did you come away um, thinking anything different, or was your experience of that? Well, uh, obviously, when they invited me to be guest editor of the Today program, um, it was nice of them to do so. They didn't have to do that, um, and. But what I did notice is that I think the guest editor the day before or the day after was Greta Thunberg, and she got an e she got an easier ride than I did. Let's put it that way. And um, in particular, I noticed that um, the person interviewing me really did everything he could to wrong foot me, which is an odd thing to do with a guest editor because the, the idea is that the guest editor um, comes forward and guest edits. Instead of which, um, it was more like being in a sort of interrogation chamber uh, <laughs> and bringing up things that he thought I'd thought 30 years ago and that sort of thing. Um, uh, that seems strange to me, but I, I can't complain. I was allowed to do at least a certain amount of what I wanted for an hour and a half or whatever, which is a great privilege. Um, but uh, I did also notice the, the way the system works, so that there were all sorts of things I asked for that I was told I couldn't do because of course the idea of guest editing is not just simply that you speak but you invite x and y in and so on um, so for example i wanted to interview the person who i think is probably the most biased of all the uh, correspondents um, on anything on the bbc who is roger harabin the environment correspondent who seems to be just a spokesman for extinction rebellion and so on and um uh they wouldn't allow that um and they say extraordinary things when you ask about it. they say things like he can't answer back. Um, uh, it's one of the things they love saying if you criticise a BBC journalist. It seems to me he gets a chance to answer the whole time, all day, um, on all channels. So um, it's about time that it, the positions were reversed. Did it feel like being in the enemy camp? Well, no. I mean, there are a lot of people I like very much um, on the BBC and a lot of very talented people, and they don't all have the same view um, and I particularly like the people you never see. I mean, there are a lot of very nice young producers and assistants. And, um, but um, so I didn't feel that I was suffering persecution at all. But I, um, you certainly feel that um, you are regarded as a very strange creature. Well, I suppose that might be true. And, um, and that you um, sort of shouldn't be there, really. Um, that point you raise about Roger Harabin um, and the way that you were not allowed to, to cross-question him. Or, um, talk to, or talk to him at all, actually. Or talk to him at all. Yeah. Um, or get anyone else to, I should add. I mean, I suggested why doesn't he talk to... I think I wanted him to talk to Matt Ridley, um, who's a brilliant commentator on the environment, but no. No. But... Um, this touches on a more general point, which is the way the BBC avoids engaging with its critics. Yeah. Would you agree? Yes. I mean, like all bureaucracies, um, it has a tremendous palaver of engagement. So there are all sorts of sort of feedbacky type systems. But also, like all bureaucracies, it knows how to suffocate these uh, things. So it's very difficult to um, have a true engagement in these matters. Um, on air. Um, I did, one thing I did once that struck me about that was I appeared on Question Time and Fiona Bruce was in the chair and um, it was after the Brexit result, sometime after the Brexit result. And um, early on, I said, I would just like to send me, I'm 
honoured to be here, but I would just like to say that of the five panellists, I'm the only person who voted for Brexit. Um, and 51% um, of the British people voted for Brexit, but only 20% of the people on the panel um, are. <laughs> and this doesn't seem to be unusual. It seems to be what you do almost every week. Um, and um, obviously they couldn't actually stop me saying that, but I've never been asked on the programme again. So. No, they don't take kindly to that kind of public criticism. But the Brexit issue which you raise, I think, was a point at which, for quite a lot of people, the, the penny dropped about the BBC because, um, I don't know if you'd agree, but the, the, the BBC's coverage of Brexit seemed to me so obviously lopsided that um, you know, more people suddenly became aware of the problem. Um, well, I would like to divide the BBC's coverage uh, on Brexit, of Brexit into two, because I think it tells you something about how it all works and how bias works. During the actual campaign, referendum campaign, they were in fact quite fair, because there are very strict rules which go down to counting by seconds how many seconds or minutes each side can have. And they're quite easy to enforce, you just have to be very careful about doing it. And the BBC is good at that sort of thing, that it can work that out and it's fine. But the moment the result came in, whoom, um, and um, then you had a tirade and torrent of uh, opposition to Brexit going on for months and months and months. First of all, just expressing utter shock that it could have happened because they truly, truly didn't believe it could have happened. And then as they began to concert with others to come to believe that they could reverse it by some means, perhaps a second referendum, perhaps judicial reversal, perhaps a general election where it would go the other way, whatever. Um, and there, the BBC was more biased than I've ever seen it, I would say, as a, as a general proposition. Um, and, um, uh, and then you're right, I think, that this became very apparent to the public and was very significant um, in Boris Johnson leading the Tory, becoming leader of the Tory party and leading the Tories to huge victory at the nine, uh, December 19 election. And how systematic do you think that sort of bias is at the BBC? I mean, how is it that on an issue of that scale, after all, the major cleavage in British politics over the past 50 years, really, the European issue, um, why is the BBC so out of sync with public opinion? Well, of course, some of it, to use the cliches, is to do with a particular sort of what people used to call a clerisy um, of people educated in the same places with the same views, um, almost sort of hereditary caste. Um, then I think there is Therefore, there tends to be a common view and therefore they tend not to notice what else is happening. So I think one mustn't underrate the extent of shock at the result. Not just that they didn't like it, but they were absolutely amazed by it. Because they really hardly ever met people who wanted Brexit. I mean, of course, I exaggerate, but not very much, actually, particularly not met socially. You know, they perhaps would have met someone interviewing them for some news event or something. But, um, and so they... They couldn't, couldn't cope with it. And in a funny, I, I think that shows that they are rather a ruling caste because one of the things about a ruling caste is it doesn't 
feel the need to question um, itself much because it's ruling. So if you're, if you're ruling, things must be quite good, mustn't they? And so um, a bit like when you know, the Foreign Office completely misjudged the state of Iran before um, the fall of the Shah, because the Shah was uh, pro-British and he seemed quite a charming chap and everything. And his opponents seemed to be maniacs and a lot of them were, unfortunately. Um, and so they would keep on reporting that um, the Foreign Office would, that, uh, you know, that it was all fine. And then suddenly it happens. Um, and it's happened ever since, for the, since 1978, 79. And um, so there's a sort of conspiracy, an unintended conspiracy against understanding in the BBC. I mean, the popular way or the fashionable way of talking about this is to say that, uh, you know, people exist within their own intellectual, social bubble. Mm -hmm. And that is maybe the explanation of the BBC. Yes, and I think this is particularly true if you're, because of the way it's funded. That might sound, might, it might sound strange to say that because you would think that a license fee paid for compulsory by everybody would make the BBC very attentive to everybody. But it doesn't work like that because you know you're going to get the money come what may. And um, you can't lose the audience, or you can lose the audience, but you can't lose the money. And um, so you can um, keep cracking on with whatever it is that obsesses you. And within very broad limits, you will go on being allowed to do that. Whereas whatever the faults of a newspaper, if you're talking rubbish that the readers don't like, or even if you're telling the truth which the readers don't like, um, you will lose the readers. Um, what did you make of the of the the scandal we're still sort of seeing unfold before our eyes, that the Bashir scandal? I mean, that is, um, well, let me ask you, what do you think that tells us about the BBC? When the Bashir scandal um, finally completely broke and we got the Dyson report. Tim Davy, the new director general um, of the BBC, who I believe is sincere in trying to uh, restore impartiality, was interviewed on the Today programme. And he said some good things, but I thought he made a bad mistake because he said um, that the BBC investigates itself more than any other media organisation in the world, which is a very, very strange thing to say about something which has taken 25 years to come out. So for a quarter of a century, theoretically, it did investigate itself because it had an original internal inquiry at the time, but actually it didn't. And it's pretty clear that it deliberately didn't. And it's pretty clear that um, in 2016, when it rehired Martin Bashir, it was not repentant um, about the whole thing. And indeed, it may possibly have been trying to cover up something about Martin Bashir or keep him quiet by rehiring him. So... Um, uh, the truth about self-investigation, I mean, yes, he's right. The BBC is obsessed with process and it, it incessantly has inquiries about this, that and the other. But when it considers that its vital interests are at stake, um, uh, it has a brilliant way of glossing over whatever that problem is. So the Jimmy Savile case would be another very important one. Um, and the typical reasons why it would gloss over would be the protection of a box office success, such as Jimmy Savile, um, or the protection of its own reputation, such as Bashir, um, or the obsession with a scoop, which is also to some extent Bashir. Um, 
And there is a potential conflict between the charter of the BBC and scoops. Not complete, of course. But one of the things that um, often happens with the scoop is that you have to obtain it very fast and by very unusual means. Now, the BBC obviously shouldn't rule that out, but the danger with such scoops is that they suspend the, eth the ethics of your process, which are particularly important in a license feeing situation, um, uh, and that they make you exaggerate the importance of what you've got so that you don't apply a um, calm news judgment to it. And I think both of those things were going on in that case. And it is very, very, very iniquitous what happened. I mean, it's particularly iniquitous in relation to the monarchy and the royal family because um, the unspoken deal, almost a spoken deal, is that because the BBC is the national broadcaster, it always um, broadcasts all state occasions involving the monarchy uniquely um, and has a trusted role in all of that. Um, it would therefore, you would expect, deal with the authorities properly and fairly. And it must be remembered that when Diana was, gave this famous interview, she was still royal. She hadn't yet divorced uh, the Prince of Wales and she was protected by the royal system in terms of private secretaries, press secretaries, where she lived, everything. Um, and they chose to conceal the whole thing from Buckingham Palace and all the system. Um, so they were breaching trust in that respect and they were completely forgetting their role as a national broadcaster. You, you can't, there's this constant desire in the BBC to have it both ways. Um, and this, of course, breaks trust. Do you think that there's a suggestion there of a sort of incipient republicanism within the BBC? No, I, I wouldn't say there was incipient. I'm mean, no doubt some are republican. What I think there is is a sort of sneer about patriotism. So you have absurd... I mean, it really did turn out to be true that the BBC was trying to get rule Britannia out of the proms, for example. I mean, just ludicrous. I mean, I don't regard this as a deeply important story because the fundamental thing about the proms is music, not um, patriotic display. But there's a long tradition of the last night of the proms. It's very popular. It's absolutely fine. Um, it's not hostile, racist or anything like that. Uh, it's jolly. And the idea that they, the British Broadcasting Corporation should be trying to slough this off, pretending it wasn't. Um, it's just ridiculous. And that's the sort of thing. It's not um, some very ideological political agenda about we, we should be a republic. It's not sort of careful Marxist uh, stuff. It's, it's a sort of snobbery um, and an embarrassment about the idea that we should be proud of our country and... Um, and particularly that we should show we're proud of our country. It was George Orwell who said, wasn't it, that uh, English intellectuals are, you know, would be um, more embarrassed to stand up for God save the Queen than they would be to, etc. Yes. Um, so tell me this, you mentioned Tim Davy, and he has been saying the right things, hasn't he, about restoring impartiality. And there seems to be a reform programme that he has in mind. Do you think the BBC is reformable? Well, there are two separate questions about reform of the BBC. Um, one is the sort of question of how does it 
behave and be run and all that sort of thing. And the other is whether you get rid of the license fee. How is it financed? Um, which relate, but are different. And um, I do believe that the license fee will, was always wrong, but was enforceable. And now it's still wrong and it's not enforceable. So it will have to go. I mean, it's lasted a very long time, longer than I expected. They're very clever at perpetuating it. Um, and it's only recently that licensee fee, I think it was last year, perhaps, or the year before, that license fee revenue fell for the first time. Um, but it must go um, because of technology, because the whole younger generation doesn't buy television licenses, all that sort of thing. Um, it, it will go, it's just a question of when. Um, and how you construct the sort of financing way out of it, nobody has really yet worked out, though I think Tim Davy is something he's thought about quite a lot. Um, then there's the question of how should they behave. And it seems to me that if you justify some unique advantageous system of financing, whether it's a license fee or something else, there, and here Mr. Davy is quite right, impartiality is the absolute key to it. Because what is it otherwise that you bring to the party that you can't get, that you can't guarantee any other way? And how can you make demand that everybody pays for it if what they're getting is not is in fact partial. Just so obvious, such an obvious moral point, it seems to me completely indisputable. Um, and that mean, does mean that there are constraints on the type of journalism that you can do, which are different from the constraints on me at the Daily Telegraph or whatever. It's because of the fact that people have to pay for it. And also that it's supposed to serve everybody. So um, not only by being impartial, but also um, trying to cater for the right range of interests and occupations and regions and um, and I don't think most BBC people at the top really think that way. They sort of try to, uh, most of them, but actually they don't. They're more carried away by what they care about and the way King C. Amos always used to put it, the novelist used to put it like this, he said what people are obsessed with in uh, the BBC is what he called, how does it go? How will it go down at the club? Meaning what will my colleagues think about it? Mm. Um, uh, not um, what will the viewers think about it? And you, <laughs> I mean, I'm always amused me, the BBC use of the word brave when talking about themselves, which shows, confirms this very much. A program they will say is brave is one which runs no risk at all within the organization for the person making it because it, they will, he will be congratulated by colleagues because it'll be about you know, how awful um, Boris is or something like that. Um, uh, and, um, you know, or exposing something which we all know is bad, um, like racism, um, or being very challenging in your questions to a conservative minister or something like that. Um, that's brave. I remember, picking this up years and years ago, I, I was invited to a religious broadcasting conference. Um, and everybody there was from religious broadcasting, mostly from the public sector, um, except for me and one or two others. And they kept saying, this was in the late 80s, and they kept saying how brave they were, because on all these religious programs, they made programs which was, were in favour of AIDS sufferers. Um, and the implication being they were defying a sort of massive... Um, 
uh, anti-gay um, consensus, which um, uh, you know was really putting them at risk. But there wasn't that massive anti-gay consensus. Um, there was a there was very widespread compassion for age sufferers, um, and it wasn't brave. It might have been right, but it wasn't brave to um, uh, make these programs. And in fact, what would have been brave in a religious program would be if they got on a sort of tub-thumping, um, damn, damn sodomy um, a type character who, um, you know, I don't think such people are good people, but, you know, that, that was, they could put that religious position. That's religious broadcasting, if you like. But of course, you would never get that. You'd never, ever get that. Now, that would have been, suppose you'd have one person on Thought for the Day who said, actually, um, uh, you know, if people didn't have gay sex, they, would, uh, they wouldn't get AIDS um, and God condemns it and all the rest. Now, that would have been very unattractive, but brave. <laughs> and, um, and do you see what I mean? So yeah, they, they kept thinking what courage they were showing, but they, in fact, led very protected lives. Um, it's interesting you talk, touch on the religious issue because we interviewed um, someone from a small charity called Aid to the Church in Need. Yes, very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, he was talking about a specific concern of his, which is that the BBC seems to give very little attention to, put very little effort into, the persecution of Christians in countries like Iraq or in Pakistan, mm. where some terrible things have happened. Yeah. I just wondered if the same thing strikes you too. Uh, I, I am very struck by um, the extreme sensitivity about what might be called Islamophobia um, and the lack of interest in the plight of Christians in persecuted countries. Um, I think it's very marked actually and while I think it's absolutely right to be very careful about being unfair about any great religion, I think it does prevent First of all, the Christians are suffering in many of these places, and this is unheard. Their cries are unheard. And secondly, I think um, there are definitely news situations in which the BBC doesn't tell you what's explain what's going on because it's frightened of saying something which might offend, in their view, offend Muslims. And I've noticed recent examples of this of what's happening in Africa, where um, Islamist violence has been described in other ways. And I, and I noticed, for example, that there was a lot of kidnapping, this was, I think, earlier this year, of um, children in Nigeria. And um, when this was first reported on the BBC, I, I noticed specifically that they didn't mention the possibility of uh, an Islamist motive. And so there was talk about criminals or ransoms or sort of thing. Um, and it emerged later, reported in other sources, that it was indeed uh, Boko Haram, I think, and um, that it was a religious motive, which, by the way, is, uh, doesn't necessarily exclude ransom because Islamists believe in ransom as a religious duty in some situations. Um, and gradually, what tends to happen in those situations, the BBC ends up reporting it, but only when it's got the cover from other people doing so. And similarly, it's reporting on Mozambique recently, where they were chopping off the heads of people on the beach, uh, Islamists, was a bit like that, though it got to the truth a bit quicker. But, you know, the, it's, um, you can see that hesitancy. And I, in back home, you can see it. So um, this teacher who had to leave the school in Batley um, because he'd shown the uh, pupils 
the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, all the sort of um, presumption of innocence uh, was not given to him. His motives were called in question. Um, it was suggested that he might be Islamophobic or you know, incredibly ill-judged or something like that. And they didn't make the inquiries about who these people are who are attacking him. Which, and I looked some of it up and you could see that the, under the sort of rather thin veneer of uh, charities, very small charities, you would find people who were putting forward very extreme views who were imams or sort of um, that sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, condemning the man. So they're very uninvestigative of, you know, they love investigation sometimes, but not of things like that. And what do you think explains that? I mean, this sort of, this, um, as it were, this protective attitude towards Islam, and yet this indifference to verging sometimes even on hostility to Christianity. What, what, what explains that? Well, whatever explains it, it's not that many people on the BBC are Muslims, because uh, not many of them are, um, and it's not because they wish to advance Islam in that sense. Um, I think it's a combination of um, fear um, of being accused really of racism, because often the whole question about Islam is seen in race terms, which is quite wrong, but it is. Um, uh, and also of an assumption of who's bad in the world and who's good. And this is becoming more explicit now with critical race theory, which is itself racist because what it, it, what it, so for example, a thing put out by Cambridge University Vice Chancellor last week made this clear that um, what he called whiteness was actually bad in itself, which seems to me that is a racist theory. I mean, that's like saying, that's like the South African apartheid theory the other way around. Um, and, um, therefore, and I think the BBC sort of some vague, inarticulate way subscribes to something like that. So unless proved otherwise, the white person, and particularly the white man, is guilty in any situation. If all you can see is, you know, one brown person or one black person and one white person, who's guilty? It'll be the white one. Um, and that's where they start. Of course, they don't always come to that final conclusion. I mean, they're not completely crazy, but that's how they start. And that's why, for example, they capitulated abjectly to Black Lives Matter after the death of um, uh, uh, George Floyd. Um, in all their coverage was entirely uncritical um, of Black Lives Matter and treated it as the authentic expression of all blacks, really, and indeed of all right-thinking people. Um, and therefore, you know, when they started knocking down statues and having rats and all that sort of thing. No effort was made to work out who are these people, what's their ideology, whom do they represent. Um, they're, they're right. And you sort of, and often within the BBC staff organisations, that sort of thing, are now very powerful and often seem to dictate content, which should surely be decided by editorial, not by staff organisations, um, uh, insist on one way of looking at it. And so again, though the BBC gradually this unscrambled a bit over time and they've, they've said a little bit more about, um, about this, essentially their, their coverage of Black Lives Matter has been unilluminating and biased. But isn't it extraordinary that an organisation which is 
I think still one of the largest, if not the largest, employer of journalists in the world, should have such incuriosity about something so salient to 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 to. to to our society today. Yes, and I think uh, there's a lot of very able and well-informed people in the BBC, and I think a lot of them do feel oppressed by this. In fact, I know they do, because I sometimes talk to them. Um, they might not share my particular obsessions and political views, I don't know, but they, but they, a lot of people of them want to be fair, and they also have, as you say, intellectual curiosity. But, but bureaucracies operate by fear to a very large extent, and what they're frightened of is being accused of something like Islamophobia, much more than they're frightened of being accused of bias. Um, and so they do have very uninquiring minds. It comes back to something I was saying about my objection to them in the Thatch years was simply not explaining. Um, I would also say this about the after events, everything that's gone on since 9-11, um, that I've had very few, some very good people who have done something like this, like John Ware, for example, but on the whole, the distinction between Islamism and mainstream Islam is never properly explained on the BBC. And therefore, in some curious way, the BBC is fulfilling the right-wing view that, the sort of uneducated right-wing view that all Muslims are extreme, because the people it gets on all the time are pretty extreme. And, um, and um, there's no actual interest in the theology of Islam, the differences between different um, sects and parts, um, the more quietest spiritual traditions of Sufis and so on and so on. Um, it's, it's, um, it's just, we w let's get a Muslim. Let's get a Muslim on. And of course, which Muslims they get on? on the whole, the ones who shout the loudest. Um, which, and if you think about it, that is a racist idea. You don't say, let's get a white man on. Um, <laughs> Uh, you don't even say, let's get a Christian on. You'd say, you'd probably say, let's get a bishop on or an Anglican bishop on or a Catholic bishop on or something like that. Um, so you get absolute misrepresentation. And the, misrep the misrepresentation is very great, but it's done out of a misunderstanding, which is actually rather unsympathetic to Islam. John Pontifex of ACN said that uh, this was a matter of what he called religious illiteracy. Yes, and that of course is a much wider problem than the BBC. There is a general religious illiteracy. Um, I remember a, um, a white Christian friend of mine in the media, or theoretically Christian friend of mine in the media, uh, was given a, um, for her child a, a little Catholic kiddies book um, with pretty pictures and things like that. And it, say, it said um, at one point, pray for us sinners, us sinners now and at the hour of our death, which is of course from the Ave Maria. And she said, why does it have to mention, why do they all go funny, these religious things? Why do they have to mention death in a book for children? And had no idea that this is the main prayer of Catholics. <laughs> and um, and um, so it's a very widespread problem. And BBC is not alone in that, but given its immense, resources, this is another of my frustrations, only the BBC, because of its huge journalistic resources, could do these things in depth, actually, in modern times. They're the only organisation who could, and they don't. Um, finally, let's just look to the future a bit. Um, we've got the advent of this news station, GB News, 
Um, two things. In general terms, do you welcome that? And do you think that it might conceivably have an impact on the BBC? Well, I certainly do welcome GB News and I welcome um, all sort of entrants to the market from wherever they come. Um, I don't look forward to the sort of slugging match if that's what it becomes like Fox News versus CNN or something like that, because I don't think Fox News spread, I mean, it certainly spreads more heat than light, but um, it, it must surely be better if there is competition. Um, and out of competition, not always, not every time, and not necessarily quickly, but on the whole comes something better. So the BBC perhaps in reacting to, if, if GB News is a success, perhaps the BBC will come to look to its own lights and perhaps um, set about competing um, on that new territory, which GB News maybe uh, gathers to itself. Um, you have to get a lot of scale to compete with the BBC on these issues. And because, we, because of our broadcasting system, if you break through to that scale, you come under the same bureaucracy um, and you start to move in the same circles and you repeat the same attitude. So actually Sky nowadays and ITN, ITV rather, are not super different from the BBC. They have many similar problems um, and they behave in a similar way. And Channel 4 in particular is quite preposterously biased, though it's... Um, uh, it's theoretically under the same impartiality rules. So um, I think the problem now is you have a sort of big television establishment, which is dominated by the BC, BBC, but it's not solely the BBC. And then you have minnows coming in from the outside who are genuine competitors, but very hard for them to get the scale. So um, I don't expect some sort of great breakthrough about that soon. What I think will definitely happen, but quite when, is that the fundamental monopoly about the money will, will go. Um, as conservatives, we're supposed to want to conserve things and we want to conserve institutions. Mm. Do you wish to, I mean, are you one of those who could be brought round to thinking uh, that the BBC should be abolished? Or do you take the view that it is such a valuable cultural resource in the country that um, it must be reformed and we must work hard to achieve that? Um, I think it would be fair given the importance of the BBC in British history and the way many aspects of it are still admired and uh, enjoyed to give it a chance. So um, therefore I was pleased when Tim Davy was appointed rather than thinking wouldn't it have been better if they'd appointed an extreme lefty and then we could, the enemy would have been in more plain sight? Do you see what I mean? I, I, I wish him well. Um, uh, it may be possible to at least to make the BBC better before it eventually breaks up. Um, worth a try. Um, but uh, it can't really last and probably it would have been better not invented because it's a fundamentally monopolistic idea. It's, and it's as the technology has changed, it's become, that's become clearer. And if you think of it in other forms of expressions, I suppose you'd only had the British Publishing Company and that had to maintain that only the British Publishing Company could publish a book. Um, and, and it could publish as many books as it liked because they'd get the money anyway. 
and whatever book it wanted and no other books, you could immediately see that um, this was wrong. This was a, um, an affront to freedom and a, and a, and a suppression of creativity. Um, and for all its definite historic virtues, that's what the BBC is. It's an affront to freedom and a crush of creativity. And um, you notice, and though I said just now that the big competitors tend to be too close to it in some sort of way, this isn't so true of things like Netflix. So one of the big things that was always said about the BBC was, um, you know, you can't have these mar marvellous drama series. If you, ha you can't get all the money in for the life feed, it turns out not to be true at all. You can have very, very good drama series in other ways of uh, reaching people, such as modern technology. So um, I don't sort of hate the BBC root and, root and branch at all, but I think it, it betrays its duties. Um, and I also think it is a model which uh, is out of date. Lord Moore, thank you.